going to be in Colossians chapter 2, talking about the pastor's heart this morning. As we've just finished the first chapter of Colossians, we learned a lot about what Jesus means, or who he is, and, and what he means for you and I, and how he can help us to live victorious lives that bring the light of the gospel to everyone around us. The first chapter also identified the enemy that we were facing and how to, to defeat this enemy in our lives through submission to God and his ways. As we start into the second chapter of Colossians, Paul takes a different direction. It's almost as, 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 he, as if he thought as he was writing this letter that he's like, wow, you know, that first chapter was was pretty heavy. I kind of like started it on him right away and, and went really super deep. And he takes kind of a different direction now. And to take a step back to say how much he cares about the people that he is writing to. And how he wants them to experience God and all of his fullness in their lives. Now you have to remember that most of the Colossians have never met Paul. He never went there as part of his missionary journeys. They are one of the churches that Paul pastored kind of from afar, along with Laodicea. So he takes a pause here to remind them and his teaching that although it may be a little difficult for them to swallow, that he may come at them really hard sometimes, he may come at them and it's very convicting and very challenging to them, he's doing it out of a place of deep caring for them. He's not watering it down. He's not sugarcoating it. He's giving it to them straight. He's giving it to them honestly. And he's doing it for their own good. And today we're going to look at the heart of a pastor. And Paul uh, starts to describe that heart in the first few verses of Colossians chapter 2. So let's read what he wrote to them this morning. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he said, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in La at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom they have hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Father, as we go through this scripture today, I ask, Father, that you just open up our hearts, not only to see what the person who stands behind the pulpit is supposed to be like, not only to, to see the person who carries that title in the church, but to see how you have called us all to be pastors of someone in our lives. Father God, I ask, Lord, that your word does that today for all of us. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, there are many facets of being a spiritual leader, especially if you're called to one of the offices described in the book of Ephesians, the fivefold ministry of, a, of, pro, of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. And Paul is giving both the churches he's writing to and us today a glimpse of what a heart of a person should look like who is called to be a pastor or a shepherd of Christ's church. That word pastor only really appears a couple times in the New Testament, and it's always 
tied together with this idea of shepherd. If you really want to see what a shepherd is supposed to be like, you read Psalm 23 and you can see that. And the first thing that Paul says that, we, that a shepherd for God's church is supposed to do is that you are to contend. You are to contend. According to Webster, to contend means to struggle against something. In the case of a pastor, it means that they are to struggle against many things. And the first thing is themselves. Against our own sinful nature. That's probably the part, the part that we contend with actually the most. We're always in our own heads. If any of you know me really well, you know I'm my own worst critic. If anybody is grumbling against me, if anybody is complaining against me, I have probably spent five hours doing it myself. So trust me, I am my own worst critic. I was told early on in, in ministry, never listen to your own sermons. Because you just sit there and you go, oh, man, I messed that up. Oh, no, I'm the worst, worst and most horrible preacher on earth. And it's, um, it's something that we all struggle with. And unfortunately, there's a flip side of that. This is a place where many spiritual leaders fall short. And I've watched many pastors throughout the years fall because of pride. I watched in particular a pastor that we got involved with um, back probably in the late 90s that was an up-and-comer. He was an incredible speaker, very charismatic, very strong leader, and he knew it. He had what I called the man of God syndrome. He is the man of God, and you don't get to question him. And eventually, he managed to replace the entire church board with yes people that, that didn't challenge him. And eventually, within a couple years, this incredible growing empire that he was starting to develop crashed down because he fell into sin. And he didn't have anybody on the board or even in the church who could point the finger in the face and say, Pastor, you're wrong. We need that in our lives. Pastors need that. We all need that in our lives. Most of us have a spouse that does that for us all the time. You're wrong. It's also, it's also why spiritual leaders need your prayer. It's also why any spiritual leader should want someone close to them that has that kind of permission. There's an interesting take in Matthew 5.24 that I heard on a sermon once. Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount when he said, I tell, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I heard it said that you can read the Greek in such a way that Jesus isn't just saying we should be nice to our enemies, we should love our enemies, we should pray for our enemies. He's not just saying that. He's, say, he's saying that we should pray that God gives us an enemy. That sounds a little counterintuitive. None of us really want enemies. But an enemy is that one person on earth that you don't get to bury your dark side in front of because your enemy is a person who gets to poke that dark side of you, that, that, that mean side, that impatient side, that side that you don't want other people to see. And if you keep hiding that, if you keep stuffing that down below and it never gets poked, it's kind of like leaving leather around 
for a long time. You never treat it, you never wear it. Maybe it's like a leather belt. You just kind of leave it and it starts losing its malleability and it starts stiffening up, it starts cracking. And, um, and, it, and it doesn't do, and sooner or later it's going to fail you. And your heart's the same way when it comes to your enemies. Your enemies touch those areas of your heart that you hide from everyone else. And none of us like to be reminded that there's parts of you that can get really ugly really fast if you're poked in the right way. Anybody have a trigger? Anybody have a trigger? In the ER, one of mine is a man who abuses a woman or a child. I become quickly homicidal. I, I, I want to, to immediately um, dispense justice in that case. It's the reason I'm not a police officer. I, I'd be on those videos that you see of police officers abusing people. <laughs> and I just, I, I can't, I, I just, it's the one thing I can't tolerate. Your enemy just may be in your life by permission of God. He may be God's tool to keep you humble and dependent upon him. Especially if you're in a leadership role here in the church. But you know what? You're always in a leadership role. Every single one of you is always in a leadership role. Some of you have leadership roles in your family. You may be the only Christian in your workplace. Guess what? You're the pastor. You're the elder there. You're pastoring those people. Or especially if you're a parent with young children, you're pastoring those kids. I brought up the pastor contending with himself or herself first because next they could have to contend with those they are called to pastor and even the community they live in. You see this in Paul's life. Paul was making his final rounds through Asia Minor before his arrest. The Holy Spirit was telling him personally in his prayer life and through prophets that he was going to be arrested soon. He stops off at Ephesus and meets with the elders of the church there to say goodbye. And that goodbye is recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he said, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So this is him talking to the elders of that church. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from some of your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you day and night with tears. I love this verse. I used a snippet of it on business cards I had at Prayer House because it totally encapsulates the primary job of a spiritual leader. He tells them, be shepherds of the church of God. The shepherds and the pastors have the following responsibilities. Number one, they are to keep watch. They are to make sure that the people they're called to minister to are safe, they're fed, and they're healthy. They are to stand for the truth. They are to teach the truth, even when it ruffles feathers. 
even knowing as they seeing things, whether they're in a, a small group or standing up here teaching, they know that this that what they're going to say is going to ruffle feathers, but they gotta tell them the truth of God anyway. They are protect them against spiritual and sometimes even physical predators. And most of all, they are to teach them God's word so that they'll become mature in the faith and they can learn to fight for themselves. That brings us to the next thing that should be on the heart of a pastor. And that is encouraging. And I actually hyphenated and encourage there. Because in modern English, we often think that the word encourage means to give support to someone or, or a group that we're going to encourage them or, or tell them how great they are. But what this word really means in the Bible is to take the source of your courage and to share it with somebody else. It means to, to take what you have and infuse it into their lives and their spirits. And one of the most famous examples of God encouraging someone is found in the beginning of Joshua. To set the stage, Moses has led the people for over 40 years. He led them out of bondage. He's led them through the desert. He's led them through all these, these different stories that we see in Exodus and, and throughout the, the, first five, or for, or the four books of the Bible that he wrote. And now he's died. He's left Joshua as a leader of over 6 million people with a mission to lead them into the promised land. Understandably, Joshua was probably a bit overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed at the thought of taking all on all these warrior tribes that he had scouted out about 40 years before and, and conquering Palestine. However, Joshua did have one advantage, is that he got to observe and serve Moses day in and day out for most of that 40 years. He was his right-hand man. So he had a first-hand look at how Moses dealt with times of stress and uncertainty. So Joshua did what Moses would have done. He got alone with God, and he prayed. In Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 9, God tells Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Anybody here need that kind of encouragement from God this morning? Anybody have a promised land that they have to conquer? And they see giants in the land and don't think they can do it? Maybe some people here just feel like they have to, they want to give up. That whatever is facing them is just so insurmountable that you don't think you can do it. This is where Joshua is. 
And you know what God told him? Be courageous. He calls us to be courageous. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Remember when I said I ruffle some feathers once in a while? This may be one of them. But please listen to the whole thing. There is a, a big truth that the believers of Jesus Christ need to hear. I'm talking about Christians here, people who have been born again. And here's the big truth. God despises cowards. He despises them. You say, why do I think that? That seems really harsh. Well, check this out. At the end of the age, the beginning of the new heavens and new earth, Jesus himself says the following in Revelation 21, when he lists the kinds of people who will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. And look at what is first. Revelation 21.8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Pretty harsh. Let me explain where I'm going with this. Notice the order of the character traits here. In verse 21, he starts out with cowardly. But then he says unbelievers, and then lists a whole bunch of sins that unbelievers do. And it's my belief that the cowardly he's referring to here are people who say they're Christians. But they give in to fear so they won't stand for Christ. They'll wear their jersey. You know, they'll be the Packers fan, but they'll put a coat over it. And the Vikings fans come by and they're yelling skull, he'll yell skull with them, even if they're defeating the Packers at that time. He won't stand for his own team. These are what we would call Sunday morning Christians, or once in a while, twice a year Christians. I'm not talking about simply being afraid. It's okay to fear. It's okay to be afraid. Fear is a healthy response to danger. If you're walking in the woods and a bear roars at you, you probably should be afraid. Fear gets you ready to run or fight the bear. One of the two. God, God has given us that kind of fear to, to get our body ready to, to run or to fight. However, courage is understanding that there are some things more important than your fear and choosing to act despite that fear. Godly courage comes from faith. And that is what God told Joshua. Be strong and very courageous. He says it several times. Be strong and courageous. And then he tells them why. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You're not going through this by yourself. You're not going to face the giants by yourself. I'm going to be standing right there with you. So when you are cowardly, you are totally negating my presence here. You are saying that those giants over here can beat me. And nothing can beat God. 
And you might be thinking, what if they harm me or they kill me or, or they hurt me or they, they, they cancel me or they, they, they come against me or I lose my job or, or whatever fear you can come up with? Well, I hate to tell you this, but we're all going to die. It's coming. I'm going to try to make it the last thing I do, but it's coming. I mean, besides, do you really want to live forever in your current body? I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I look forward to a resurrected body. No one gets out of life alive. Jesus didn't even get out of life alive. So far, life has had a 100% mortality rate. Even, the, even Enoch and, and Elijah are probably going to be the two witnesses that come back, and they die. So life has a 100% mortality rate unless we happen to be the blessed generation that goes in the rapture. So don't fear death. Don't fear what this world can do to you. Embrace it. Look at death as a finish line of a life well lived for Jesus and then run into his arms. As the Bible says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Jesus is just focusing our attention on where it should be. You have the all-powerful creator standing with you in life. When he calls you to be strong and very courageous, he's saying, look at who's standing next to you. If every army ever assembled, every animal that has ever lived, any insect that has crawled or flown around all came at you at the same time, the least of God's thoughts could blink them right out of existence. You have nothing to fear. That's why it's my job to tell you these things, so that you can be encouraged, so that you can have God's courage within you. Not because of anything I can say, not because of anything or any eloquence I can bring to this, because I'm pointing you to the God of ultimate strength, and he has promised, I will be with you wherever you go. The next thing that should be on the heart of the pastor is to help the church be united in agape love. In Psalm 133, the Bible says this, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. Now what is being referred to here is the blessing of the high priest. It is the anointing that they would do at the end of this long ceremony and preparation time of the high priest where they would pour the oil, the sacred anointing oil over his head symbolizing God's anointing on that person. And that word anointing means to be set apart, to receive favor and power and presence of God. That's what it meant to them in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the anointing is the birthright of every believer in Jesus. 
Do you know that you're a high priest? You receive that same blessing upon you. But there's a couple of conditions to use those privileges. And the main one is unity. First, you need to be unified with God. You can't use God's power and not be unified with God. That's just common sense, right? You have to be in close, intimate fellowship and relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Second, you need to be connected to the rest of God's family here on earth. God doesn't want us to be lone rangers anymore. He doesn't want the prophet Elijah sitting in a cave. He wants all of us to be God's family. And that's why you need to be connected to this fellowship of believers. Because really all that favor, all that power, and all that presence, that anointing you carry with you is meant to enrich the entire body of Christ. And not just you. And that is why being united in agape love is so important. Most of you know that word agape is a Greek word. It means a selfless sacrificial love feast, the kind of love that God had for us, the kind of love that sent Jesus to the cross. That's the kind of, um, of love that is being spoken about when you see the word agape in the Greek. And a pastor's heart should model and teach this, and teach this to the people that he is called to minister to. The fourth and final way that we see how the scripture describes a pastor's heart is to teach us how to treasure the true riches. And that is knowing God. Some people say, what kind of reward do you get in heaven? Or some people will say, wow, you did that for the church. That's, some, that's, something, awful. that's something that was kind of awesome. And I just joked that I wanted the extra nice rug in heaven in my mansion. You know, it's kind of a joke, but when you think about it, our reward in heaven is getting to know God more and more and more as eternity goes on. I often use the example of the cherubim and the seraphim encircling the throne in heaven, crying out, holy, holy, holy to God. They aren't just programmed animals or creatures or creations just circling the throne. I believe every time they make that full circuit of the throne, they see another aspect of one attribute of God, his holiness, and they cry out again. That's just one attribute of God. And they've been doing this for as long as creation has been here. Holy. That's just one attribute. Imagine us being able to experience God like that for eternity. We could spend a million years crying out just about his holiness, much less any of his other attributes. That's our primary reward in heaven, is to know God. And the mystery of God is Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, it's the gospel. As, past, as the pastor and apostle Paul told the church in Corneth, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he said that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. We know we all just lived through this, this epidemic and pandemic of COVID. I want you to do a thought experience for a, a experiment for a moment. Pretend for a second it's April 2020. COVID is all they're talking about in the news. It's wreaking havoc on our country, on our world. 
There's shutdowns. You have to wear a mask everywhere. Mass layoffs. Mask mandates. People hoarding toilet paper. Remember that? Of all the things that they hoarded, they hoarded toilet paper. It was crazy. The fear that everyone was under was incredible. Now pretend, and again, we're pretending. This isn't political or anything. Just pretend that we find out they always had a cure for it. They had a cure as soon as it hit our shores, but they hid it from us. How angry would we be? Are we talking about like torches and pitchforks walking out and protesting in Washington? They think January 6th was something? This, this would get the, the public going, I think, if this was found out. Because as bad as COVID was, there is still a far deadlier disease out there. One that has killed countless billions of people and still affects our lives today. This disease also has a name. It's called sin. Sin is a terminal illness. If you catch it, 100% mortality rate. And guess what? We're all born with it. It's extremely contagious. But what if you found out that your neighbor next door was hoarding the cure for sin? People are dying all around you, and he would not give any of it out to you. Never shared it with you. You'd have the same reaction as you would of, of our leaders in Washington. Torches and pitchforks outside his house, right? But this is why a pastor contends. This is why a pastor encourages you. This is why they try to keep unity in the church so that God's anointing is flowing because we have that cure for sin. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't just about the heart of the person who stands and preaches every Sunday. This is supposed to be the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ. He has called you to pastor those he has put into your lives, for those he has placed in your lives for such a time as this. You're all pastors of someone in your life. We're all priests in God's kingdom. So I encourage you this morning, let his anointing fill you to stand in that high place he has called us all to occupy for those around us. Let's all stand. Father God, I just pray over your people this morning. I ask, Lord, that you just open up their eyes, you open up their hearts, you open up their spirits to see the high and lofty position you have for them to step into. It is already theirs. It's already theirs. You have already given it to them. Help them to step into it. Help them to believe in it, to be encouraged, to be, to be willing to contend for these people, to stand in your power, your privilege, and your anointing, Lord, and be willing to speak the truth in love so that people will not go to hell without experiencing at least one presentation of the gospel in their lives. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just place within them that high Holy Spirit anointing to be the priest of their neighborhood, the priest of their homes, the priest of their workplace, 
Help them to live like that and walk like that before a world that desperately needs the cure that is called the gospel. Father God, I just bless your people now. I ask that you let them to walk in that anointing so that they can be lighthouses of the gospel in the world you've called them to live in.